Well, good morning to all of our great friends there in Tulsa at the Mid-America Prophecy Conference. I sure wish I could be there in person with you. We always look forward to the conference each year, but unfortunately, Wendy and I couldn't make it this year. I'm sure Phil explained that I had unexpected emergency appendectomy surgery this past weekend, and then unfortunately had some complications afterwards that kept me in the hospital several days, but just got out to Tuesday afternoon, evening, and doing well. Uh, and uh, delighted to be able to be with you for this video message. Uh, the doctor said it just wouldn't make sense to be uh, engaging in a nine-and-a-half-hour drive uh, on uh, Thursday this week, so we uh, went with Plan B, and I appreciate uh, Phil being gracious enough to let me record these messages uh, by video. You know, the, the material I'm going to be covering uh, this morning and also uh, tomorrow morning uh, is very, very important. It's something heavy on my heart. Uh, something that I've uh, really worked hard in putting together uh, specifically for our Tulsa uh, conference. And uh, so I hope that in spite of the unusual delivery system with me not being there in person, uh, the Lord will use it and it'll uh, really encourage and edify as well as uh, perhaps uh, awaken you to some things that you haven't uh, heard about uh, before. Uh, so I know that uh, I'm speaking from video, but I want you to know that I'm speaking directly from my heart and directly to you all as if you are in the same room uh, with me uh, right now. Uh, so before we dive in, though, I want to let you know uh, about my brand new book that just came out on March 21st called Spirit of the Antichrist, The Gathering Cloud of Deception. Now, if that sounds familiar, you may recall last year at the Mid-America Prophecy Conference, I uh, shared a message with that same title. And since then, I've uh, spent the last year putting together a, a lot of data and information and collating it into a 300-page book that I think will really uh, bless you and really also encourage you uh, about all that's going on in the world. So it's got 38 pages of bibliographic citations, uh, and I really uh, take to task the whole Luciferian conspiracy that you've heard me talk uh, so much about. Now, because we're not there in person as planned, uh, we've set up a special shipping code uh, for folks at the Tulsa Conference so that you can get the book uh, without having to pay shipping. Uh, just go to spiritoftheantichrist.org, and you'll see that on the screen uh, throughout the message. Uh, but spiritoftheantichrist.org, and uh, when you get ready to check out, just put in the shipping code TULSA, all caps, T-U-L-S-A, and we'll make sure and get you that book or anything else that you find from the Not By Works resource store uh, that you think uh, you'd like to get. Uh, so just wanted to mention that we still do have some more of the video series that we had with us last year. So if you purchased this last year, no need to purchase it again. But uh, I know we're always picking up new folks at the conference. Uh, but this is an 18-video, 14-hour, 10-disc set uh, that you can get either by streaming or on a physical DVD. It's not as detailed on each topic as I get into in the book. So the book is much more up to date. and It has uh, data in it from as recent as February of this year. The book was just published in March, so it was right up to the minute. Uh, but the, the video does cover a lot of the same material and give you some visuals that you won't get uh, in the book. Uh, so I wanted to mention those two, two things. Remember, you can go to spiritoftheantichrist.org and be sure and use the shipping code TULSA for free shipping. So with that, let's dive in uh, to the topic for this morning. Uh, my title is, Whose Fingerprints Are on the Founding of America? You know, more than ever before, Christians are waking up to the reality of the cosmic struggle that is raging between God and Satan, 
between the earthly forces of good and the earthly forces of evil. And in this first message today, I'd like to examine the role of the United States in this grand struggle. And I want to give you this uh, caveat here at the outset. Uh, for some people, the information I'm going to be presenting may come as a surprise. Um, others, of course, may be well studied in these matters, but I want us to um, kind of start with an open book and ask the question, honestly, whose fingerprints are on the founding of America? Now, right at the beginning, I want to remind you that, of course, according to God's Word, any nation that follows God's Word will be blessed. Proverbs tells us righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So we certainly know that every nation that follows God's principles, elevates God's Word, and celebrates God's Son will be blessed. In fact, uh, if you go back to the nation of Israel and those famous blessing and cursing passages from Deuteronomy, right out of the chute in verse 1 of chapter 28, we read, It shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, talking about Israel, to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. In fact, uh, in Psalm 33, an anonymous psalm, we read quite plainly, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. So as we look back at the 247 years of American history, one thing we can say with great certainty is that God's fingerprints are on the founding of America. That's the first answer to my question. Without question, the fingerprints of God are all over the early days of America. Now, as we're going to see in a few moments, uh, that's not to say that all the founders were born-again Christians, but they did live and operate in a world where the Judeo-Christian ethic was a pervasive part of culture. In the 1600s, 1700s, the biblical worldview still prevailed, even among those who were not Christians. They'd never trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone as their personal Savior. Um, but it's not surprising, therefore, to see, as we review American history, the fingerprints of God everywhere. Uh, I've talked about this in previous uh, messages, but, for example, the Declaration of Independence talks about how all men are created equal and endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. The Founding Fathers, in other words, believed in a Creator. They understood there was a God. The Washington Monument's cornerstone was laid in 1848, and it contains the U.S. Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and the Bible indicating that this was an important part of the culture at that time. Engraved references to God on the Washington Monument include Search the Scriptures and In God We Trust. The U.S. Capitol Building was built between 1793 and 1858, and it too includes engraved references to God, such as What Hath God Wrought? America, God Shed His Grace on Thee, and In God We Trust. Some of the paintings that hang in the Capitol Rotunda include Pocahontas being baptized from the Jamestown colony, colony era. Also, also the pilgrims praying for God's mercies before they departed from the New World. There's a stained glass in the U.S. Capitol Building Chapel that depicts George Washington praying below the phrase, This Nation Under God. Now I'll have more to say about George Washington in a few moments. But above the house chamber's main door are marble silhouettes of history's 23 greatest lawmakers. And interestingly, Moses is in the center, as you see circled there on the screen, and only Moses faces forward. Again, 
indicating the fingerprints of God on the founding of this nation. The Supreme Court building above the Eastern Colonnade are history's major lawmakers. You can see a picture there on the screen. Moses, again, is in the center, holding a depiction of the Ten Commandments. And then this famous Supreme Court decision from 1892, so well into our country's uh, life, uh, by a nine-to-nothing decision, Justice David Josiah Brewer wrote the majority opinion and cited 87 precedents. And he said, again, this is 1892, this is historically true. From the discovery of this continent to the present hour, there is a single voice making this affirmation. These are not the sayings, declarations of private persons. They are organic utterances. They speak the voice of the entire people. These and many other matters which might be noticed add a volume of unofficial declarations to the mass of organic utterances that this is a Christian nation. Now I'm going to come back to that Supreme Court case a little bit later, um, but notwithstanding these clear indications that God's fingerprints are all over the founding of America, there is more to the story. Something else was at play in the 18th century as our nation was birthed. And to understand this, we need to understand what I explain in my new book, The Luciferian Conspiracy. What do we mean by the Luciferian Conspiracy? Well, first of all, it is a biblical concept, and it's also a term that the Luciferians themselves have used down through the ages to describe their plot to take over the world. The primary proof text from Scripture that describes this conspiracy is Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, a psalm of David, which reads, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? So there it is. There are human co-conspirators plotting something. What are they plotting? David goes on to tell us, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And what are they saying? They're saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So you can see there, the, the word there is capitalized twice, indicating that's a reference to the Godhead. That indeed, these Luciferians do not like God's sovereign control. Satan thinks that this world is his. He tried to usurp the throne in heaven. He was banished from heaven along with one-third of the angels, which the Bible calls fallen angels, the demons. And they have ever since then been trying to take over this world for themselves. They've been uh, raving against this bonds, these cords of control. Satan has control issues, and uh, he's trying to take over this world. I call this the growing global rebellion. The growing global rebellion. And I want to ask you, are you watching this growing global rebellion? It's unfolding before our very eyes with the greatest intensity and urgency in 6,000 years. And this morning, I want to take us back 1,000 years before Christ to the time of King David in Psalm 2, which we just read part of. And I want to show you how David gives us one of many glimpses we find throughout God's Word into this cosmic battle between Satan and God. David expounds upon the role of Satan's earthly agents, the Luciferian elite. Now, psalm 2 is a psalm of David, and it's pretty easy to outline. Frankly, the first stanza gives us the Luciferian plot. And then in the second stanza, we see the Lord's plan in response to that. The Lord laughs 
at anyone who thinks they can overthrow his sovereign rule and uh, omnipotence. And then we see in the third stanza the long-awaited prince as uh, Jesus Christ the Messiah takes the throne and rules in perfect peace and righteousness. And then the psalm closes out with the lasting promise that anyone who has faith can be part of the family of God and um, be a part of the winning team in this grand battle. So the reason David could speak uh, proleptically, we call it, I talked about this word last year in my message, it just means that sometimes the scriptures speak in a prophetic sense of something as if it has already happened, that in actuality has not happened in time yet. And in Psalm 2, we learn that David has in, that God has installed his king, the anointed, his eternal son and our savior, Jesus Christ, on the throne, even though we know here in time, space, and matter, that climactic event has not happened yet. It will not happen until after the rapture, after the seven years of tribulation, after the battle of Armageddon, when Christ comes back at the second coming to take the throne and inaugurate the long-awaited kingdom. But David speaks of it proleptically, as if it's already happened. And the reason he can do so is because the battle has already been won. You go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, what theologians call the protevangelium. It's the first reference, earliest reference to the good news, the gospel, that Satan has been defeated and that new life is available through Christ. And God here, speaking to the serpent, says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Notice the capital S. That's a reference to the Christ child. And he goes on to say, He, that's Jesus, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, in other words Satan is going to uh, strike at Christ, and indeed he did in the first century. He was crucified. But it was not a mortal wound. Uh, Christ defeated death, hell, and the grave and rose from the dead. Satan thought it was mortal, thought it was permanent, thought he had solved his problem and finally broken those uh, bonds and cut those cords that he'd been uh, talking about. Uh, but he had not because uh, death could not keep him in the grave. And uh, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And then he has, in so doing, issued the ultimate mortal wound to the head of the serpent himself. That's the reason Paul, at the end of Romans, can give a warning against false teachers. And to conclude that warning, he adds that the promise of God, the God of peace, is going to soon crush Satan under your feet. And so the false teachers were under Satan's influence in Paul's day. Uh, but Paul says someday, in the text it says shortly, but that doesn't mean like immediately or very soon. Shortly just means one of these days, you know, we're, we're going to get you. You can count on it. That's the idea there behind the Greek word. So someday Satan will be destroyed and God will in fact establish peace on the earth as we read about in Revelation chapter 20, where the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire, the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Hallelujah. You know, although Satan knows the end of the story, and he just doesn't believe it, uh, he thinks that his plot, the Luciferian plot, will prevail. But his plot will not turn out like he intends. And so we know that God's fingerprints were all over the founding of this country. But in a moment, I'm going to show you how Satan's fingerprints were there as well. Uh, because often what God intends for good, Satan, Satan takes and uses for evil. But Satan's plot, the Luciferian plot, is not going to turn out like he intends. Uh, have you ever made a plan that 
didn't turn out like you intended. Maybe you spent weeks or maybe even months strategizing, organizing, and planning. You roll out this plan and it utterly fails. I mean, there are many famous examples of noteworthy failures. Maybe you've uh, remember some of these, for example, the Sony Betamax. Sony launched its cassette recording device known as Betamax in the mid-70s, and it lost the battle for market share to JVC's VHS technology. Now, some, some of you younger folks uh, in the audience uh, don't know what a Betamax or a VHS is, uh, but uh, it was the early form of video technology. But uh, the Betamax became the laughing stock of the video cassette industry. Or what about this one, Diet Coke? Or I'm sorry, the new Coke. Uh, I remember this one. This was in 1985. Coca-Cola unveiled new Coke after testing it on 200,000 people and allegedly discovering that everyone uh, preferred the flavor of new Coke over the traditional version. But they vastly underestimated the traditionalism of Americans, and people didn't buy new Coke as they thought it, they would. And it cost the company $4 million in development and also a loss of $30 million in backstocked product it couldn't sell. Th th those cans of new Coke are probably still sitting in a warehouse somewhere. Who knows? Uh, but that was one of the most famous failures. Or what about this one? I'm a Mac guy myself, and so I like to know a little bit about the history of Apple or Macintosh. And in 1983, Lisa, the first desktop with a mouse, was released. It cost $10,000 in 1983, which today is equivalent to about $24,000. It had just one megabyte of RAM, and uh, but consumers just weren't as interested as Apple anticipated. It was a case of over-promising and under-delivering. And uh, if you get a chance sometime, go back and search for the television commercials uh, for the Apple Lisa, because they featured a very young Kevin Costner, and it's a fairly interesting uh, ad uh, uh, to watch. And then finally, uh, some of you may have heard the story about the Edsel. Ford did extensive market research before it released the Edsel, even doing studies to make sure the car had the right personality to connect with people. But by the time they done all this research, the car was unveiled, and Ford had absolutely missed the window, missed its chance at the market, which had already moved on to buying smaller cars, and that certainly did not include uh, the Edsel. But all of these examples show us that Robert Burns was right. Do you know the name Robert Burns? Robert Burns was a Scottish poet and lyricist. He's widely regarded as the national poet of Scotland and, of course, celebrated worldwide. Burns's literary influence in the United States is seen in the choice by novelist John Steinbeck, for the title of his 1937 novel, Of Mice and Men, which is taken from a line in the second to last stanza of Robert Burns's To a Mouse. And so that line goes like this, The best laid schemes o' mice and men gang after glay. Or to translate into our common vernacular, The best laid plans of mice and men can still go wrong. They don't often come about. So to paraphrase that quote, King David assures us in Psalm 2 that the best laid plots of devils and demons will not succeed. And this is an exciting time as we see the Luciferian plot rising to the fore and the Lord's plan pushing back. And someday we're going to see that the Luciferian plot is no match for the Lord's plan. Amen. 
So this conspiracy that David talks about is easily diagrammed. It's a you know a conspiracy which I've talked about in previous messages at the Mid-America Conference is simply two or more entities working together for some nefarious or evil means. In this case, the Luciferian conspiracy is Satan, his demons, and human agents working together to try to take over the world and usher in a one-world satanic system. And conspiracies are as old as time itself. They date all the way back to Satan conspiring with demons to overthrow God in heaven. But this involves human counterparts and human agents. We're going to look at some of those in a moment. And, of course, demonic agents, unseen elements of this conspiracy to take over the world. And Paul warns about these unseen elements in Ephesians chapter 6, when he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. See, the Luciferian plot has been raging for 6,000 years. But let us never forget the human co-conspirators. And yes, a closer look at the founding of our great nation confirms that some of those human co-conspirators were part of this Luciferian conspiracy as well. So Satan's fingerprints are also on the founding of America. You know, I crunched some numbers as I was preparing uh, this message, and I discovered that the United States has, as a nation has been a part of human history for less than one-half of one percent of history. 247 years out of 6,000 years, roughly speaking. So the United States has been a part of human history for less than one-half of one percent of history. Satan has been here for 100 percent of it. And to think that America is somehow insulated from Satan's craftiness or that we somehow escaped his influence 247 years ago is simply naive. So before we get to this information about some of the examples of Satan's fingerprints on the founding of this nation, uh, which, by the way, may be new to some of you uh, and no doubt will be troubling to all of us, let me remind you of a very important principle from Scripture. And that is, what man means for evil, God can use for good. Remember the story of Joseph, uh, whose brothers uh, treated him harshly throughout his life, frankly, and they thought Joseph would exact revenge near the end of his life. And Joseph says to them famously, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Listen, there is no doubt that America is the greatest nation on earth. We have done more to advance the gospel than any nation in history. And clearly God has used this nation in a powerful way uh, for his purposes. And I am so thankful to God that he allowed me and my family to be born into this nation and that I can raise my children and my granddaughter in this setting. But let us not be so naive as to miss Satan's fingerprints on the founding of this great country as well. Because one thing we know for sure, and I've dealt with this in other passages, I talk about it extensively in the, the new book, is that the Luciferians want to destroy this nation before they can usher in the one world system. It's the one nation still standing in the way of the one world satanic system. And so I believe their crosshairs are set right on America. They're trying to bring us down by fomenting division, in my message tomorrow morning, I'm going to be talking about 
Russia, Ukraine, and the New World Order, and how things are not always as they appear, and what uh, Satan might be trying to do with his Luciferian counterparts to try to use this as one part of a larger piece of the puzzle to bring down America. So America is an incredible, great nation that God has used, but the fact of the matter is, as we shall see in a moment, from its very inception, Satan has been angling to make this nation, this geography, a beachhead for the New World Order. So let's take a closer look at the Founding Fathers. You know, examples of the Founding Fathers citing God and the Bible in a positive light are all over the place. Uh, but does that tell the whole story? That's the question. You know, if we cherry-pick quotations, we can make anyone seem like a God-fearing, Bible-believing, born-again Christian. In fact, maybe this will come as a surprise to you, but did you know that many of the leading liberal, progressive, woke politicians of our day apparently are some of the most God-fearing, Bible-believing, born-again Christians in our country? That's right. Just look at their quotes. For example, President Barack Obama said, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins, and I am redeemed through him. I bet you didn't know that Obama was a God-fearing, Bible-believing, gospel-believing, born-again Christian and a godly saint. What about uh, Bill Clinton? President Bill Clinton said, The Bible is the authoritative Word of God and contains all truth. Wow, I had no idea. Or Hillary Rodham Clinton the Bible was and remains the biggest influence on my thinking. I was raised reading it, memorizing passages from it, and being guided by it. I still find it a source of wisdom and comfort and encouragement. I bet you didn't know that about Hillary Rodham Clinton. You're beginning to see my point, I hope, that you can cherry-pick quotes, and unless you look at the broader context, you don't necessarily get the whole picture. For example... Nancy Pelosi said, my favorite word is the word, capital W. And that is everything. It says it all for us. And you know, the biblical reference, the gospel reference of the word, capital W, we have to give voice to what that means in terms of public policy and keeping the values of the word. Or President Joe Biden said, Jesus Christ is the human embodiment of what God wanted us to do. So does that mean that all of these uh, public figures are godly saints that were doing God's bidding and founding our country or serving our country, in their case, uh, at the behest of God? Hardly. So yes, we, we see many pro-Christian, pro-Bible, and pro-God quotes among the founding fathers. But let's dig a little deeper. Let's take a look at some of the less known quotes of the founding fathers. For example, Thomas Jefferson, in a letter to John Adams in January 24, 1814, said, In the New Testament there is internal evidence that parts of it have proceeded from an extraordinary man, and other parts are the fabric of very inferior minds. He goes on, It is, easier to, it is easy to separate those parts as to pick out diamonds from dunghills. See, Thomas Jefferson, as great of a patriot as he was, makes it clear that he believed that some parts of what was in the Bible was, were true and some were not. However, these pieces of truth in the Bible were mixed with error from inferior minds. So Thomas Jefferson thought the Bible was, in part, the product of inferior minds. And that's why, if you go to the Jefferson Museum and look in that glass case at the Jefferson Bible, as I have done, 
you'll notice that he deliberately omits all of the supernatural elements from the Gospels, like the virgin birth, the miracles of Jesus, the resurrection, the ascension. You can see where he's literally cut out the words of Christ from his Bible. Thomas Jefferson goes on to, to tell us that the character of Jesus is it's not to be understood that I am with him in all of his doctrines. In other words, I don't believe in, in everything Jesus says. And specifically, watch this. Jefferson says, quote, He, that's Jesus, preaches the efficacy of repentance towards forgiveness of sin. In other words, Jesus believed that if you repent, change your mind about who I am, then you can have eternal life and be forgiven of your sins. That's the testimony of Jesus. He said it most plainly in John 6, 47. Verily, verily, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. And Thomas Jefferson says, yeah, Jesus preached pre preach that. I disagree. He said, I require the counterpoise of good works to be redeemed. So, you know, perhaps it's because Jefferson rejected much of the teaching of Christ that he espoused a works-based view of salvation. What about Benjamin Franklin, a well-known Freemason? And as a Freemason, he believed good works were the only way to get into heaven. Good works are represented by the Masonic apron, which traces back to the coverings of Adam and Eve, which they made for themselves in the Garden of Eden, trying to achieve redemption. Thomas Jefferson, or excuse me, Benjamin Franklin said, Original sin is as ridiculous as imputed righteousness. Does not sound like the words of a God-fearing, Bible-believing, born-again Christian to me. Benjamin Franklin went on to say, As to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire... I have some doubts as to his divinity. Now, speaking of Benjamin Franklin, some of you may be familiar with the infamous Hellfire Club, which had many prominent members, including Benjamin Franklin. The Hellfire Club was an exclusive membership-based organization for high society types, founded in London in 1718 by Philip, Duke of Wharton, and several of society's elites. Uh, Philip, Duke of Wharton, was a powerful Jacobite politician, writer, wealthy peer, and grand master of the premier Grand Lodge of England, which was the first Masonic Grand Lodge to be created. He led a double life as a drunkard, a rioter, an infidel, and a rake hell. A rake hell is a great word to get to know. I added it to my vocabulary when I was studying for this message. It means a man who is heavily involved in immoral conduct and debauchery. So Duke of, the Duke of Wharton's club was considered a satirical gentleman's club intended to shock and ridicule religious beliefs through the act of mock religious ceremonies with the supposed president of the club being Satan himself. The Hellfire Club involved the construction of a complex series of tunnels and chalk and flint caverns for the club's meetings and activities. Each of the cave's chambers are connected by a series of narrow passageways consisting of the entrance hall, the steward's chamber, the Whitehead's cave, Lord Sandwich's circle, Franklin's cave, the banqueting hall, the triangle, the miner's cave, and the inner temple. The inner temple was accessed by uh, crossing a faux river meant to represent the river Styx, which, as you know, is a river in Greek mythology that supposedly runs through hell. Many rumors of black magic, satanic rituals, and orgies were in circulation during the life of the club, with the notable English writer Horace Walpole stating that, quote, the practice was rigorously pagan. Bacchus and Venus were the deities to whom they publicly sacrificed, end quote. So that does not sound consistent with a group of men who were uh, 
founding a country based on the urging and prompting and leading of the Holy Spirit and the Creator God to establish a Christian nation. What about John Adams? Uh, speaking about principles on which our country was founded, he said, these are what are called revolution principles. They are the principles of Aristotle and Plato, the principles of nature and eternal reason. Regarding the, quote, general principles on which the fathers achieved independence, I could fill sheets of quotations from Rousseau and Voltaire. Now, why is that significant? Well, because Enlightenment thinkers Rousseau and Voltaire were both directly and adamantly opposed to Christianity. And John Adams is saying the principles of our founding of our nation, our foundation principles, were based upon the teachings of Rousseau and Voltaire. And, and what did Voltaire say? Voltaire said, Christianity is the most ridiculous, the most absurd and bloody religion that has ever infected the world. John Adams goes on, the Europeans are all deeply tainted with prejudices, which they can never get rid of. They're all infected with creeds and confessions of faith. Well, what are these prejudices and confessions of faith that are so troubling to John Adams? He goes on to tell us, they all believe in God. They all believe the great principle, God, which has produced this boundless universe. And he goes on to add, until this awful blasphemy is got rid of, there will never be any liberal science. In other words, it's blasphemous to think there's a God who created the earth. That's John Adams. Well, another often overlooked historical fact when evaluating the beliefs of our founding fathers is the Treaty of Tripoli. The Treaty of Tripoli was signed uh, by George Washington June 7, 1797. And President Washington, for the first time, sent a treaty with a non-Christian people, Tripoli, to the Senate. And it included this flyer that you see on the left of your screen there that he sent to the Senate. And that flyer opens with the following statement from George Washington. As the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, he goes on to say, we should enter this treaty with Tripoli. Now it's interesting as we looked at earlier that 95 years later, the Supreme Court of the United States would rule nine to nothing that America is in fact a Christian nation, which simply shows that the justices did not take into account the Treaty of Tripoli and the words of our nation's first president. Now, I do believe that early America, the Pilgrim and Puritan America, and here's that picture that I showed earlier of the pilgrims praying, but I do believe that the first 100 to 150 years of our country very much was a Christian nation, even before it was a nation, if you will. But revolutionary America and what the beliefs of the founders of America were is an entirely different matter. Again, God's fingerprints are all over it and he has used it. But that doesn't mean that Satan didn't have an agenda right from the beginning as well. So when we see people quote Adams, for example, as you see on the screen, and you see this quote everywhere, uh, saying that the Christian religion is above all religions that have ever prevailed or existed in modern times. It's a wisdom of great, it's a religion of great wisdom, virtue, and equity and humanity. What they don't tell you, and what that quote fails to mention, is that Adams denied the deity of Christ and openly advocated for getting rid of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whenever we see references to the God of nature in the founding fathers' writings, people often point to that to prove that uh, these men were Christians. But really, those 
references to the God of nature are simply references to natural human reason. Now, any discussion of Satan's fingerprints on the founding of America would be incomplete without at least a short discussion of Freemasonry. Now, the fact that some people try to suggest that Freemasonry is not a big deal and that our founding fathers who were Freemasons were not hardcore, they say, well, that's simply absurd. They're simply not doing the research. Freemasonry or masonry refers to the fraternal organization that traces its origins back to the local guilds of stonemasons from the end of the 13th century. In modern times, the first Grand Lodge, the Grand Lodge of London that we talked about, uh, was founded on St. John's Day, 24th of June, 1717. The degrees of Freemasonry retain the three grades of the medieval craft guilds, those of apprentice, journeyman or fellow, and master mason. The candidate of these three degrees is progressively taught the meanings of the symbols of Freemasonry and entrusted with grips and signs and words to signify to other members that he has been so initiated. Of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, 13 were known Freemasons. Some say only nine, but the best evidence that I've been able to uncover is that there were 13. There may have been more among the 56 signers, but we can say definitively that there were 13. In fact, the Declaration of Independence was written itself on a Masonic white lambskin apron, as you see on the screen there. This same kind of apron is given to each of the new Masons through a ritual in which they are told that someday it will be their covering when they stand before the great white throne judgment of God. Interesting. You know, I find it very interesting that the great white throne, as we know from God's word, is the judgment of the damned, not of those who will enter heaven. And as scripture itself says, there will be many that stand before it someday trying to cover their sins with their own good works, just like these Freemasons are trying to cover their sins with this lambskin. And yet they will be cast into the eternal lake of fire. This apron is used to cover Freemasons when they are buried. Now, Albert Pike was an American author, poet, uh, orator, editor, and lawyer. And uh, he had previously served as a senior officer in the Confederate States Army, commanding the district of the Indian Territory in the Trans-Mississippi region. He's a prominent member of the Freemasons and served as the Sovereign Grand Commander of the Scottish Rite from 1859 to 18. 89. He's considered to be the father of modern Freemasonry, and in his book, Morals and Dogma, uh, he wrote this, Masonry, like all religions, conceals its secrets from all except the adepts and sages or the elect, and uses false explanations, lies, and misrepresentations of its symbols, more lies, to mislead those who only deserve to be led. Remember, Satan is a liar, and the father of lies. Jesus said in John 8, 44, when he speaks, he can only speak lies. Um, Albert Pike goes on to say, that which we say to a crowd is we worship a God, but it is the God one adores without superstition. To you, sovereign grand inspectors general, we say this. In other words, we say one thing to the public, but another thing inside our uh, domain. I say this to you that you may repeat it to the brethren of the 32nd, 31st, and 30th degrees. The Masonic religion should be, by all of us initiates of the high degrees, maintained in the purity of the Luciferian doctrine. Yes, Lucifer is God. Lucifer, God of light and God of good, is struggling for humanity against Adonai, God of darkness and evil. So I've written about extensively, and I get into this in the new book, that the Luciferians think that Satan, the serpent, is the hero in Genesis, and God is the antagonist. 
They dedicate their books to Lucifer. They worship Lucifer the way you and I worship the Almighty God. And here we have Albert Pike uh, admitting it in writing. Now, any group or organization that shrouds the name of Almighty God and His Son, Jesus Christ, in secrecy or symbolism and openly admits uh, to worshiping Satan uh, should really give us serious concern. There is evidence that Freemasonry, though not called by that name, dates all the way back to ancient times. Egyptian artifacts have been found with known Masonic symbols and hand signs, and some of the pharaohs have been found wearing aprons. The Masonic Temple in Washington, D.C., when they join the lodge there, they go through an initiation ceremony. And in that ceremony, the initiate is bare-chested and blindfolded with a noose around his neck. He is then taken outside the lodge. They knock on the door, and a person inside asks the initiate, What do you want? And he then answers by saying, I want to come out of the darkness and into the light of Freemasonry. So again, God's Word teaches us that God is light and Satan is darkness, and we're to come out of the darkness into the light. Satan believes it's just the opposite. The initiate is then brought into the lodge, still blindfolded, and a dagger or sword or another sharp object is placed against his bare chest, and then he swears the first of many blood oaths and curses over himself and his family. He agrees to be murdered or mutilated if the oath of the degree is ever violated. If you send a message that you're a Freemason when you're applying for a job or a promotion or medical school or grad school or law school, if you send a message in such a way that only other Freemasons would recognize it, if there's a Freemason on the search committee, this will guarantee your acceptance. Masons swear an oath to give preferential treatment to fellow Freemasons. In other words, if two people are applying for a job and one is a Freemason, they must give the job to a Freemason. Uh, you've probably heard much about the different types of handshakes. I just showed a few of them. This is the Jackin, uh, the, the second-degree Mason uh, fellow craft handshake. And uh, we, if you look closely, you'll find that frequently uh, in mainstream media uh, pictures and depictions. Uh, the hidden hand sign is used in uh, York Wright Masonry's seventh degree. Uh, here along the top, you see Marks and Napoleon there. And then along the bottom, you see a young Nietzsche. You see Stalin. And yes, there's George Washington. So Manley P. Hall was a Canadian-born author and mystic, and he's most famous for his work, The Secret Teachings of All Ages, an encyclopedic outline of Masonic, Hermetic, Kabbalistic, and Rosicrucian symbolic philosophy. And he said it plainly, there are invisible powers behind the thrones of earth, and men are but marionettes dancing while the invisible ones pull the strings. So in war, the enemy must always hide his position, his communications, his movements, his supplies, his weapons, his arsenals, everything. Well, let's never forget a war is raging in the spiritual realm. And what does the Bible say about these satanic secrets? Well, first of all, in Genesis 3, we read the serpent was more cunning, more cunning than any beast of the field, sometimes translated crafty. In other words, Satan was doing things surreptitiously, secretly. The word cunning or crafty is arum in Hebrew. It's used 11 times. Occasionally, it's translated in a positive sense to mean prudent or wise, but in the context of Genesis 3, of course, it has a negative connotation and an evil 
purpose behind it. In 2 Corinthians, we read, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The Greek word simplicity there is haplates. It means frankness or sincerity. And in the context there, craftiness is contrasted with simplicity. So in other words, Satan was not sincere, frank, or honest like we should be. He was hiding something. And indeed he was. We see references throughout Scripture to the evil nature of setting things up in secret. Like here in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 15. Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsman, and sets it up in secret. Think back to the first century at the birth of Christ. Herod, according to Matthew 2.7, when he had secretly called the wise men. Secretly. It's the word Lothra, meaning behind the back or without the knowledge of. In Acts 16, Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have now thrown us into prison. Now indeed they put us out secretly. It's that same word, Lothra. In Matthew 10, when Jesus is sending out the twelve, he says, Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. In other words, Satan likes to do things under cover of darkness, do things secretly. And Freemasonry and these other secret societies that were so prevalent around the time of the founding of our country uh, were not consistent with the teachings of Scripture about being open and honest and truthful. What are they hiding? That's the question. In Acts chapter uh, 6, then they secretly induced men. Secretly. It's the only use of this particular word translated uh, secretly here it means to lay under or to instigate a false narrative in the context here they're talking about uh, you know uh, setting up Stephen so they could then uh, murder him in chapter 7 in Galatians this occurred because of false brethren who secretly brought out uh, brought in uh, false doctrines a uh, different word for secretly yet again. Another one that's a hapax lagama, the only time it's used. But it means to introduce someone or some plan privately or secretly. In Peter, there were also false prophets, Second Peter 2.1, who uh, among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who secretly bring in destructive heresies, meaning to bring in trouble from the outside. In John's first epistle, 1 John 1, 5, and 6, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In Ephesians chapter 5, and I talk about this verse in, oh, in the closing chapter of my book, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Right in the middle of that section, he says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. So many of the founding fathers were involved in secret societies like Freemasonry and the Hellfire Club. And that should concern us. And that brings me to my closing section here, and that is the New World Order. You know, from the earliest days of our country, Luciferians, Freemasons, and later the Illuminati have 
been seeking a, a new beachhead for their satanic agenda to take over the world. It's no accident that the discovery of America was called the New World. And the addition of the word order <clears throat> to that phrase, making it New World Order, refers to the control and power uh, and authority that they were seeking to have as they try to break the bonds and the cords that David talked about in Psalm chapter 2. So I want to give you just a few quotes as we close out this morning from key figures throughout history. And I want to start with some recent ones. Uh, just recently, in fact, on March 21st, coincidentally, the same day my book hit the market, obviously no connection, but it's just a funny coincidence, uh, Joe Biden uh, made these comments during a 15-minute speech at a meeting of the uh, lobbying organization, the Business Roundtable. Uh, he met with some of the biggest U.S. energy, food, and manufacturing companies at the White House to discuss uh, Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine. And he said, quote, now is, is a time when things are shifting. There's going to be a new world order out there, and we've got to lead it. We've got to unite the rest of the free world in doing it. See, there are factions within the New World Order, within the Luciferian elite, that are vying for control. At the top tier, uh, it's Luciferian controlled, it's Satan controlled. The top levels are getting their marching orders directly from Satan himself, just the way you and I pray to God Almighty. Uh, but lower down the level you go, there's infighting and conflict and confusion. And there is a group that really believes that the United States will be at the helm of this New World Order. Uh, Biden also said, thus, in setting an American agenda for a new world order, we must begin with a profound alteration in traditional thought. You think? Uh, in my second message at this conference, I'm going to talk a lot about uh, Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum and how they relate uh, to uh, Vladimir Zelensky and uh, Putin. And uh, you're going to be amazed at just how much of a profound alteration they're talking about making in our new world. Um, Here's uh, Dr. Carrie Chant, the New South Wales chief officer, back during the height of the pandemic. She said, we will be looking at what contact tracing looks like in the New World Order. And here's a Forbes magazine article from also in the midst of the pandemic. COVID and the New World Order, building a new human-centered economy. Of course, famous leaders citing the New World Order are well known. Uh, George H.W. Bush famously said in his State of the Union address in 1991, we will succeed in the Gulf, and when we do, the world community will have sent an enduring warning to any dictator or despot, present or future, who contemplates outlaw aggression. The world can therefore seize this opportunity to fulfill the long-held promise of a new world order. So what you need to understand is that Satan is not omniscient, he's not omnipotent, he's not omnipresent. Uh, he is looking for opportunities to take control and, and really achieve their end game of ushering in a satanic one world system. So frequently throughout their writings, especially going back the last 100 to 120 years, you see key pivotal moments like World War I, World War II, when they thought they had an opportunity to really accelerate the new world order. And they are absolutely salivating over this COVID pandemic. Now, as I talk about in the book, it's the biggest chapter in the book, chapter nine on vaccines and big pharma. The COVID-19 pandemic was pre-planned. It was 22 years in the making. It's not organic, but nevertheless, they are using it as what they see as their greatest chance ever to usher in this new world order. So George H.W. was talking about the first Gulf War, and he thought, okay, this might be an opportunity. But of course, as we've said, Satan's plot is always subject to the Lord's plan and God's sovereignty reigns supreme. And he's not going to let us enter the end game until he's ready for it. And the first sign of that 
will be the rapture of his church when we meet the Lord in the air. Richard Nixon said in China, speaking during a visit there in 1972, each of us has the hope to build a new world order. Or Mikhail Gorbachev said in 1987, we are moving toward a new world order, the world of communism. Or Henry Kissinger said the new world order cannot happen without U.S. participation as we are the single most significant component. He was speaking at the World Action Council in 1994, and he went on to say there will be a new world order and will force the United States to change its perceptions. He also said when Obama was elected in a CNBC interview in 2008, I think that his, President Obama's, task will be to develop an overall strategy for America in this period when really a new world order can be created. So once again, that was a pivotal moment when they had their puppet, Barack Obama, an unquestionable Manchurian candidate, put in place that they thought they could finally do everything they needed. But Obama threw him a few curves. There was some internal fighting between the new guard and the old guard of the Luciferian elite. Um, Vice President Joe Biden said during that same time frame, the affirmative task before us is to create a new world order. Um, you know, we could talk about um, uh, Robert F. Kennedy and some of his uh, uh, comments. He said, all of us will ultimately be judged on the effort we have contributed to building a new world order. Now, this new world order, Luciferian conspiracy, is not monolithic. Again, there are factions, there are uh, pitfalls, there's internal fighting. Uh, so it's not like they're all speaking with one unified voice. At the top tier, Satan has his ultimate plot, but they are all working hard together. And right now, at the tip of that spear is the World Economic uh, Forum. But a few more quotes. Here's Arthur Schlesinger, uh, who was a special assistant to John F. Kennedy. We are not going to achieve a new world order without paying for it in blood, as well as in words and money. A famous national educator, K.M. Heaton, said one of the least understood strategies of the world revolution, now moving rapidly towards its goal, is the use of mind control as a major means of obtaining the consent of the people who will be subjects of the new world order. David Rockefeller, uh, you've heard me quote this before, we are on the verge of a global transformation. All we need is the right major crisis, and the nations will accept the new world order. So as we uh, look forward. There's several troubling uh, quotes. Here's Strobe Talbot. In the next century, nations will know, uh, as we know, it will be obsolete. All states will recognize a single global authority. He was the Deputy Secretary of State under President Bill Clinton. National sovereignty, he said, wasn't such a good thing. And then Richard Gardner, uh, in his book, The Hard Road to World Order, said, in short, the House of World Order will have to be built from the bottom up. Rather than the top down, it will look like a great booming, buzzing confusion. But in the end, but but it, but, but it will be an end run around national sovereignty. Remember, one of the satanic credos is order out of chaos. So they love to bring in, uh, you know, order from chaos. Saul Alinsky, who of course famously uh, dedicated his book Rules for Radicals to Lucifer, uh, he said, "We must believe that it is the darkest before the dawn of a beautiful new world. We will see it if we will." believe it. So I could go on and on. I encourage you to get to pick up the book uh, because it's got several quotes tracing them through history of showing this Luciferian conspiracy. But the bottom line answer to the question, whose fingerprints are on the founding of America? Well, God's certainly are. We've seen God powerfully use 
this nation and the freedoms that it has enshrined in our Constitution, which is systematically being shredded right now, uh, in a powerful way. We've seen that, that God use this nation. But, but Satan's certainly are. And that's what concerns me. If the Lord tarries is coming, we've got to be prepared and ready to face uh, serious trials and persecutions. Proverbs 22.3 reminds us, he who sees trouble coming and prepares for it is wise. And so that's why I wrote what I think is the most important book I've written uh, in my 32 years of ministry. It's my 10th book, but it really is exposing what's coming. Now, we say Maranatha, especially those of us here at this Tulsa conference. We want to meet the Lord in the air today. If I didn't have to deliver my second message at this conference, that would be okay with me. But if the Lord's uh, timetable uh, is to tarry and he wants to see more come to faith, then we need to be prepared for what is coming and how the stage is being set. So I encourage you to check that out again. I'm sorry that I couldn't be with you today. Uh, it's, uh, it's just a circumstance beyond my control. Um, but I'm encouraged that I was able to get through the message today with very little uh, problems. I have some good energy, so I'm getting better uh, each day. Um, but remember the free shipping code TULSA with all caps, T-U-L-S-A, and you can pick up the new book or anything else uh, from our resource uh, store there at Not By Work. So thanks for letting me join you. Sorry I'm not there to ask questions. You can email us anytime. Love to dialogue about this stuff, but let me close us in prayer. Father, thank you again for the privilege and opportunity of uh, delivering this message, even if in an unorthodox uh, delivery system. Thank you for Philip and the great folks there at uh, Prophecy Has Written. Pray that you would continue to use this ministry to proclaim the truth, to proclaim the soon coming of Christ, and to be faithful to the clear and accurate gospel message. And as we've said during this message, if there's anyone that doesn't know you, help them to recognize that the only means of eternal salvation is faith alone in Christ alone, your Son and our Savior who died and rose again for our sins. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.